Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 13th, 2022, and we've been doing a lot of shows these days recently about parents and children, relationships, complexities of parents and children. Did a show a couple of weeks ago with Anna Malika Tubbs, the author of a wonderful book, uh, Three, uh, The Three Mothers, about uh, the mothers of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin, suggesting, uh, as Anna said, that these women perhaps shaped their boys more than their fathers and indeed shaped their age. Uh, the relationship, of course, between mothers and sons, always a particularly intimate, profound one. Um, we've also done shows about how to grow up, how to escape one's parents, how to define oneself apart from them. The Stanford uh, professor Julie Lithcott-Haynes is an expert on how to become an adult. Uh, her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, was a particularly interesting conversation. What does it mean to be a parent? That's an age-old issue as well. I did a show uh, last week um, with uh, Dana uh, Suskind, uh, the author of Parent Nation. Uh, She wants to reinvent America as a community of parents. But again, what does being a parent mean, particularly in a non-two-parent family? My guest today on the show, Nabil Ayers, is a very distinguished record producer, cultural creator, and he has an unusual story which is articulated in his new autobiography, My Life in the Sunshine, which is a book about growing up um, in the shade of a famous father who he didn't know. Uh, Nabil is joining us from Salt Lake City. Nabil, parents and children, it's complicated, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> the, more, the more I talk about it and think about it, the more complicated it becomes. And your story, which you outline in this wonderful new book, My Life in the Sunshine, is particularly complicated. Not everyone will be familiar about your mother and father. Perhaps you might tell us a little bit about them. Sure. My mother um, is not famous. My father is famous. His name is Roy Ayers. He's a jazz vibraphonist um, who's been playing since, I mean, well-known since the 60s. And my mother met him when she was 20 years old and immediately said to herself, this is the person I want to have a child with. And I think it's important to distinguish, and she always has, that she didn't say, this is the person I'm going to marry or this is the person I'm going to be with. She said, this is the father of my child. And um, they were never together, kind of hung out a few times. And she said to him when she was 21, I want to have a child. I want you to be the father. You don't have to be part of our lives. So she had this goal to be a young single parent and wanted to and did so. Um, and so I grew up without my father. What year was, was that? This was, I was born in 1972. Right. So 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and your mother was uh, an aspiring uh, ballet dancer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'd actually already by that point kind of considered herself retired. I mean, she still dances to this day, but wasn't trying to be a professional. It's funny, when I was re- reading the book and thinking about your story a few weeks ago, I had a a woman called Tony Bentley on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Mm, she was a I'm not. famous ballet dancer who has a new book out about George Balanchine. And she was oh. particularly spirited. Um, <laughs> is your mother 
spirited, very determined? Um, she is in certain ways. I mean, she's a very calm sort of, to me, New York City, early 70s hippie vibe about her that I love. But, but you know, when necessary, she can be very spirited and determined. Absolutely. She was determined to, to make that decision and, and follow through, which she did, which was a big one. Why do you think she picked out Roy Ayers, remarkable musician, man of great charisma um, and abilities? But why? What was, what was it about Ayers that made him such a such a, a, a seductive, if that's the right word, father. Yeah, I mean, the way she tells it, and I've talked to her so much about it, we, we're very close to this day. She lives near me in Brooklyn, and I interviewed her a lot when I was writing the book. I mean, she says she's just immediately drawn to him, knew that he didn't drink or smoke or do drugs, which has kind of always been her criteria. But more than that, I think it was this sort of kindness and this charisma and just this aura that she felt like she had and she wanted to be part of. Many of... Our viewers and listeners will be familiar with uh, Roy Ayer's hit uh, "Everybody Loves the Sunshine," which, of course, is why you've uh, you've entitled your book "My Life in the Sunshine." Mm-hmm. How would you, um, Nabil? How would you evaluate Roy Ayer's as a creative artist? What's his significance? Uh- I think he's incredible. I mean, my 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 thing, and we still don't know each other. We don't have a relationship, but as an artist, I'm I'm a big fan, and my feelings haven't changed musically throughout the years about him. I mean, I think he's more significant than people realize. I'm sometimes worried that his legacy won't be the one that he deserves. Um, you know, sampled, ripped off, sort of borrowed from so many times more than most artists. Um, a really important, significant contributor to the last fifty plus years of music. Yeah, I was doing a little bit of uh, digging around before this interview. I watched um, the video, uh, 1976. Yeah. It was a different age, Nabil, wasn't it? I mean, he, uh, he he's a Californian, spent some time in, in obviously in L.A., in Oakland. There was a spirit in 76, which maybe had gone away in 92. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah. And 76, I mean, I was just a child, obviously, but I've, I've seen all those videos and of course heard the records and it was just a different time. The world felt different. And I think the music reflects that. It's really that that's a beautiful laid back, um, really just sweet, great album. You went into the record business or you're in the record business now. Uh, you run Beggars Group. I mean, it's an odd story. And, and, and clearly he's been this enormous influence on you, even if you don't know the man, are you trying to emulate him? Is he always in the shadows there beyond the sunshine? He's definitely in the shadows in that growing up and still more than ever to this day, I hear his music all the time. You know, I was watching Summer of Soul when it came out and and it, that was shot in 1969 when he wasn't quite who he was in the 70s. So I didn't expect to see him. But of course, there he is playing in Herbie Mann's band and there's a sort of big feature on him. So that kind of thing happens all the time. So he's always been there. But as far as emulating him, it's a hard question to answer. I don't know. I've played music all my life. I've, my uncle bought me a drum set when I was two years old. I've always loved music, always wanted to work in music. Um, I don't think I was trying to emulate him. I became a rock musician, not a jazz musician, and um, and ultimately... Well, it's moved not in- that much of a leap from... <laughs> to uh, me, from- it's the leap, but yeah, I guess that's true. Music is music. Um, but but the big thing to me was the leap kind of into the business side from the music side where he's 81 and touring the world as we speak, which is incredible. I stopped playing in my mid late thirties. Um, I think realizing that, you know, touring was hard and I didn't want to do that forever. And I also just had a huge interest in the business side of it. So that was a good time to make the switch. Of course, uh, as is obvious, uh, your mother was or is 
white Jewish, your father is African American. Mm-hmm. So you've come out a little bit of both. Um, in terms of, you know, and there's all sorts of theories on inheritance and parents, and some mm-hmm. of them are extremely controversial. You never knew this guy, Roy Ayers. You barely had anything to do with him. In the book, you talk about a couple of instances where you met him and he barely acknowledged you. Do you feel that you inherited something simply because he was your father? I mean, what's your theory of genetics, if you like? I do. And of course, it's only a theory. It's it's impossible to know. But I think and hope that I inherited some of his musical talent. I think um, well, you clearly love... did, although maybe your mother has musical talent, too. Well, my mother's a dancer, and I've learned as I've gotten older how many cousins we have who are incredible musicians and classical musicians and opera singers. And then my uncle, who is really my father figure, who helped raise me, my mother's younger brother, as a jazz saxophonist. And he is the one. This is the nature versus nurture argument. He bought me that drum set when I was two. He is the one who took me to concerts and bought me records and really just exposed me to music constantly. So it's kind of this this tug of war between did it come from my father, who I've never known, but is this great, talented musician, or did it come from my uncle, who really did the hard work, the time and the effort and the energy to expose me to music. You write a lot in the book as well, My Life in the Sunshine, about racial identity. Um, How do you think of yourself? I mean, obviously biracial. Has it had a profound influence on your life being part African-American? I don't know if profound is the word. It certainly has an influence. I mean, I consider myself biracial and I always have. And I've kind of swung back and forth. I mean, through the book, there's a point several years ago where I did 23andMe and really learned a lot more about my father's side of the family and my black ancestors and people who were enslaved and all that. So that, of course, connected me more um, with the black side of my family. But I don't really know those people. I only know the white side. And I knew my mother's grand or my mother's parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents. So I've always felt connected to them. But but really, in the end, I feel biracial. And that's still that's always what I've said. And that's that's still what I say today. How is your experience in this unusual situation? How has it shaped you in terms of potentially? Do you have children of your own? No children. But if, if you did have children, how do you think it would shape you as a parent? That's an interesting question, and, and uh, I've thought about it a lot lately. People have been asking that. I mean, my, my wife is younger than I am. I'm 50. It, it's something we talk about. It's possible. Um, I How old is your wife? She's 33. Mm. I, if, I, if I were to have children, my plan would be to be in their lives, to be a significant part of their lives. And I think my plan would be to emulate my uncle as my father figure, not my father. But it's interesting because my father never left us. There was no divorce. There was none of the sort of traditional missing father things existed in my life. He, you know, we, my mother and him made a deal and everyone kept their end of the deal. And I had a great childhood. So it's, it's a weird one. I, I certainly don't think I would do what he did, but that wouldn't be how I went into it. So it's, I don't worry about it too much. I assume he didn't do this very often. I mean, there aren't lots of children of Roy Ayers <laughs> hanging around, are there? I, I do not know. I mean, your mother must have been the unusual one to be so right upfront. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, yeah, what a, what an interesting thing to be so sure of, and then to really follow through with it and do it. I mean, she was an incredible mother and did a great job raising me. Why did she want to be a single parent? Why wouldn't she want to find a man who could help raise a boy? Yeah, it's funny. Her the way she talks about it is that a relationship could come later. At that point. She just wanted to be the single mother. And she did. I mean, when I was 
pretty soon out of high school, she met her now husband right when I went to college. Almost it, it lines up perfectly when she was kind of done raising me. She found the person that she's in love with and they've been married 25, 30 years and they're extremely happy. So whatever it was, it's hard to get in that mindset, but she really did know what she wanted and, and she really did it. And it's impressive to me. And I think part of the book is about her success as a parent. I mean, yeah. she really she brought up, to borrow a Jewish word, a mensch, right? <laughs> Some people have called me that, yes. <laughs> yeah, she was an incredible mother. And, you know, it's when I was young, we were on welfare. We had no money. I mean, on paper, it would have been such a hard sounding childhood, you know, black father who's not there, 22 year old mother, welfare, all that stuff. But it was incredible. She, she raised me in really sort of open, diverse, safe places where there was nothing weird about me. Lots of other kids had one parent and were of mixed race. So, I grew up at least in my early years till I was about 10 with a really solid base of this is just what life is like because everyone's the same. I think it would have been, I mean, you had it easier than had you had a father who simply disappeared and took no responsibility. Right, right, which is the more common story. So that's why, I mean, of course, there are issues and there are feelings and I, I get into all of those in the books. It's not, I knew him and then he left, which is the more common thing. So it's not that kind of feeling of rejection that I think is more common. This is a book not just about um, your father and your family, but also about the music industry and your distinguished career in it, both as a creative and then as an entrepreneur, a, a label person, someone who owned a record store. How do these all connect? What's the narrative? What, what, what are the, the, the connections between this unusual family and your career in the music business, apart obviously from Roy Ayers, who was a musician? Right. That's a great question. I've thought about that a ton lately. I think, and, and writing is as much a part of it as any of the things you just mentioned. And writing is relatively new for me where I just, I loved it in college, but really started writing about my life five or six years ago and it turned into this book. But um, to me, it's all cut from the same cloth, whether it's playing drums or wanting to put on concerts and sell my band's demo tape when I was in high school, the, the selling of the demo tape in the hall was just as exciting as the recording it the night before it practice. It's always been this kind of relationship between the music side and the business side and the entrepreneurial side, opening a record store and writing the book and writing shorter articles. It all feels like the same kind of creative muscle. And I think that's what's really fun about my job now is that, sure, I have a job at a record company with an office and a boss and all these sort of standard things. but. I get to work with such amazing artists and still feel so close to the creative process. So it's all really tied together through creativity to me. You, uh, you began your career, or at least in part, at Sonic Boom Records. You were, I think, were you the founder or the co-founder? Yeah, co-founder. Um, I, I was looking at Klosterman's The 90s book um, recently. I don't know if you've looked at it. I haven't yet. I need to read that. I, keep uh, I think you find it. it interesting. Yeah. Uh, he, he sort of oozes the 90s for better or worse. And one of the <laughs> things I did having read it was have a look at the Reality Bites movie, which he sees as somehow symbolizing everything about the 90s. And I have to say, I was really disappointed. It was so kind of inane and inept. The, the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it somehow reflected badly on the 90s. You're a 90s guy. What is it about the 90s 
that we should cherish in cultural terms. You were there. You were in Seattle. You yeah. were at the birth of grunge. I know. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, the 90s, it's, it's a long decade to me because it started, obviously, in 1990 with really no internet or a very remedial internet and ended. Yeah, which accounts for the fact that on his um, the cover of the the, the book is a, yeah. is, a, is a picture of a of a of a, a wired phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in those ten years, so much happened. And that during the, that time, I was playing in bands, and I owned a record store. And so the record store went from this is amazing, we own a record store, to oh no, Napster, we're going to go out of business. To oh yes, Napster just means people are listening to and discovering a lot more music, but they're still coming and buying it here because it wasn't that easy and iTunes didn't quite exist yet. So. It was kind of this growing pains era, but what I really cherish about the 90s is the the very early internet, and I, I kind of refer to the music internet, meaning how easy it was to listen to things online. The very early period when people were using it as a discovery tool, but still going to record stores, going to concerts, you still needed to step further than that to fully engage, whereas by the 2000s, you could do it all without leaving your house. But I love the period where it really helped people engage more. Nabil, I was, uh, I had a startup, you may remember it, in the mid-90s called Audio Cafe. I was living in San Francisco. We were all trying to reinvent the music business. But of course, mm -hmm. what we did essentially, most of us, the Jerry Kirby's and everybody else of the world, was destroy it. Are you nostalgic for the music business before the internet essentially undermined it, before the, the, the music business pre-Napster? I'm nostalgic, but not in a way that I wish it never happened. I mean, things have to advance. I think if you look at the music business, when it used to be sheet music, and that was a huge business, that was the music business. And when they invented records, the sheet music companies and the stores, those people freaked out. They thought they were done. And I think it's easy to look back and think, oh, it was so much easier or so much better. But that's always been happening. There's always been some version. CDs did that, whatever, cassettes, you know, everything changes. And it's fun to to weather that storm. And and I've had a long enough career that I can feel like I've been through several variations of it. And it's always exciting. And of course, I'm nostalgic for the only way to find out about things was to go in the record store and talk to the clerk. What about the business side of it? Um, I mean, you're, you still have a job. You, you, you run a label, but mm -hmm. the music business is not what it was. I mean, of all the of all the cultural industries, perhaps apart from photography, it's been more decimated and more dramatically transformed by the right. digital revolution than any other. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to work for a company that really we're so focused on albums still, or the art the artists that we work with are still focused on albums. So of course things happen on TikTok, but that's not how we sign bands, or I think that is how a lot of people find bands, is they just see what's blowing up on TikTok. Whereas the labels I work with find artists we love and start to work with them and put out multiple albums and have long careers. So in a way, it sounds antiquated that we're doing that, but that's what I still love about it is that that can very much still exist and exist successfully. It does. Are you? I'm not sure if you're familiar with the writer Kurt Anderson. Um, uh, not the yeah. Studio 360 host. Yeah, he's the yeah, same yeah. guy. He wrote an interesting essay about 10 years ago suggesting that over the last 30 years, and Anderson's been on the show several times, mm -hmm. uh, over the last 30 years, Nothing much has changed in cultural terms. We still dress the same. We still essentially listen to the same kind of music. The only thing that's changed is technology. Do you buy Anderson's argument? Kind of. I mean, technology has certainly changed more than clothes. I mean, 
styles might have changed, but you still, whatever, put on pants and a shirt and shoes and socks. Whereas in those 30 years, what we've gone from CDs to iPods to phones that stream music. And now, of course, back to vinyl and arguably back to CDs <laughs> and cassettes, <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, Nabil, I've had so many conversations about the fate of the music industry. One of my old friends is Jonathan Taplin. I'm sure you know him. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, amongst other things, he was Dylan's tour manager. And then he, he has a new book out, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. He was also the producer of The Last Waltz. He argues, and maybe he's just an old, white, nostalgic guy, that music used to be much more profound in the 60s and 70s when he was growing up at the mm -hmm. last waltz for Dylan. It shaped a generation, and today it's essentially just a commodity. Do you think there's some truth in that? I think there's some truth. It depends on who you are and how you consume it and what it means to you. I mean, I would argue that there are people that saw symphonies that were 70 years old when Jonathan was a teenager, and those people who saw those symphonies 50 years earlier would probably argue that that was more meaningful than anything he was experiencing, because that was the only way to hear it, and you had to be there, and you had to hear it live and experience it with the other people in the room. So my point is really that it's always easy to say, oh, things were better before during my day, but there's always somebody who's having that day right now, and there's always someone who's probably had a better day before you. So it's you know, I think that is a, I feel that all the time. And I think, oh, you're just old. Well, if John's listening, John, you're just old. Um, <laughs> what would you tell him to listen to? I, I was looking around the internet for some of your suggestions. You've got some interesting musical suggestions. Who do you think people should listen to, to sort of capture the spirit of our age? Oh, Musicians, cool. bands who really get it, who are defining or redefining a generation in the oh, way that you know, Taplin's the band or Dylan did. Right. I mean, I, I don't know that anyone's doing it in that way, but that was such a different time of, of cultural change, obviously, in a coming of age for so many people. And, and I think the world isn't that. The Vietnam War and everything, we don't have that exact situation going on. But there are artists. I mean, I'm going to end up plugging some artists I work with because I work with them. But um, a guy named Bartiz Strange, who I work with, who is on 4AD, who has his debut album coming out next week. And that's just, to me, incredible, passionate, important music. It's genre bending in a way that I don't mean he jumps from hip hop to rock to rap. I just mean he sort of touches on so many sort of poignant styles and does it all really well. And I think that's the people who are doing it well today. There's a bit of that happening where it's less about this is rock or this is jazz or this is dance music and it's all just music and i think that's how a lot of people are consuming it too you think you you, you use the term genre bending mm -hmm. um do you think that somehow captures the spirit of our age that if you can bend genres if you can cross over on lots of levels sexually politically culturally perhaps even in terms of gender that that is what historians will remember our generation or your generation as the the genre benders? I don't know. I think that that's part of it. But there are certainly people who are just not bending genres at all who are doing quite well. So it's, you know, there's there's never one thing. That's what's exciting about music. There are people who will sell out, sell out arenas who are huge country stars who I've never heard of or never listened to who are playing very traditional country music. And then there are people like Bartiz and other artists who are doing things that I consider more interesting who also do well. And that, that's part of what's exciting today is that there's really is room for a lot more than there ever was. And there's more ways to find out about it. 
as I said earlier, you're the you were the founder or are the founder of Sonic Boom Records, very uh, successful, iconic independent record store in Seattle. That was back in the nineties, of course. Vinyl's back in fashion. Are you surprised? How would you explain this re-renaissance or that the renaissance in vinyl? The fact that now all, all the kids have vinyl players and, yeah. and vinyl records are, are driving the music industry. I think the, the the industry, and you know this better than I do, is probably making more money from vinyl than they are from downloads. I think it's still by far streaming that's making the most money for the industry, especially for the major, major labels. But, you know, you have Harry well, Styles. more than CDs, right? Yeah, yeah. But you have Harry Styles selling 180,000 LPs in America two weeks ago, which is a new which record. Which is quite an achievement. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I think... It's funny, when, when we opened Sonic Boom, that was 25 years ago, we sold vinyl then, and then it wasn't audio files. I mean, of course, there were some, but it was just normal people who liked the format. It's fun. It's physical. It's fun to have something big you can hold. It's fun to commit to a side to drop the needle, and you can't just push a button and skip the song. I love all of that about it. And I think that's what a lot of people have discovered as we are in this digital age, and you can, of course, you know, at, listen to anything on your phone at any moment that there's still this level of commitment and this tactile thing that just lets you engage in a totally different way. But I also think there are plenty of people who just like think it looks cool to have a record player when their friends come over and that's fine too, whatever, whatever works. But when you get to the kinds of numbers we're talking about, we're certainly not just talking about audiophiles or, or snobs. We're talking about plenty of normal people who just like records. And then Bill, there was a time in the nineties when everyone was also predicting the death of physical books that mm -hmm. of course never happened the physical book has survived <laughs> perhaps more than any of the other creative forms uh, alongside vinyl mm -hmm. what did writing this book this autobiography teach you about the value of books the physical book but also the nature of writing a book and uh the fact that people are going to be reading your words about your life it i think it taught me to appreciate books a lot more. And of course, I've read plenty of books and enjoy books, but I was writing much shorter pieces, 1500 word pieces and getting things published in Rolling Stone and the New York Times. And that was really fun. But it's so, so comparable to music to me. I kept saying to people right now I'm putting out singles, but what mm -hmm. I really want to do is work on my album. And to me, the book is the album. Obviously, it's a much larger body of work that took a lot more work that is a lot more demanding of anyone who's going to read it. Um, and so in that way, it's very similar to the vinyl thing I just described, where people need to commit to a side and they have this, this physical thing they can hold. And I love that about it. So it's made me, I think it's made me appreciate other books. I mean, I remember when this book showed up, I literally smelled it just because it was there and it had a smell. And that was a really exciting feeling. Do you think life is like an album? Hmm. It might be. I hope that means I just finished side one at 50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think well, that's a decent a analogy. I mean, yeah. what are your favorite albums historically? I mean, if oh, you know, wow. it's the old uh, Desert Island disc, if you could take a couple of albums to a desert island, what would you take? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you would take something from your father. I think I would. I would take Everybody Loves the Sunshine. I love that album more than ever. And I spent so much time while I was writing this book listening to the music that I would have listened to at the time of my life that I was talking about. So, you know, certain new wave and metal records when I was in junior high school, different Seattle and grunge and indie records from college. But um, I'm trying to think. Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life is one of my all-time favorites. That would absolutely be on the island. Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There's some sort of, uh, oh, Pixies, of course, Pixies, Doolittle. Um, 
who's a seminal 4AD band, but of course I didn't work for 4AD. I just got into them as a, a teenage fan. Um, hmm. I need to uh, I need to look at my playlist. I've made a huge uh, book playlist, which is really fun to listen to. You're also, as you said, you're. Uh, would you describe yourself as as, as biracial or postracial? And are, are they the same things? We we've done many shows about you know how to, basically how to avoid <clears throat> civil war in America by yeah. I don't know, thinking about America maybe post-racially or imagining biracial. I mean, you're not unusual in America. What has being biracial taught you, do you think, about trying to get beyond these terrible divisions yeah. often defined by race in America today? Yeah, it's it's a crazier time than ever. I absolutely would describe myself as biracial, and I've never described myself as post-racial because to say post-racial post would be to imply that we're past people talking about race, and of course we're not. If, we're, if it were a post-racial world, no one would ask me where I'm from. No one would look at my hair or look at my beard or, you know, sort of tread lightly around my name and all the things that happened. I'm to not going to make any time. jokes about your hair, Nabil. <laughs> I used to have an afro when I was a kid. That's kind of what I'm referring to, but yes. Uh, so... No, it never even occurs to me to say biracial. I mean, of course, when or post-racial, when Barack Obama was, was elected president in 2008, that was the thing, right? Racism is over. America's done it. And, and in a lot of ways, things have become worse and more divided since then. And we obviously hadn't done it. Um, it's a huge conversation. It's a big part of the book. It's a big part of my life. Um, I've never identified as black or white or anything else. I've always identified as biracial. And you're right, there are more people in America every day who identify that way, but it feels like there are more people who don't like that every day. So it's tough. Did you have particular pride when Obama became president, given that you, in, in, in some ways, share quite a lot of personal history? Right. I mean, white mother, black father, who we didn't really know very well, right? I mean, I did. And I, I struggled with the question, am I proud because we're similar in that way? Or am I proud of America for doing something that's so different and so forward thinking. And I mean, that's definitely the most patriotic I've ever felt was on that morning. I remember thinking like, wow. And that went away fast, I'm sure, didn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But for that day, it was a really great day. So I did feel pride. It's hard to detach the bigger pride from the personal pride. And I think it's a combination. You poo-pooed the idea of post-racial America, but isn't that what we really want? It's the only way to escape our obsession with race in this country. Yeah, well, it depends who we is. It sounds like it's me and you, absolutely. But there's, you know, what, 125 million people who don't want that, and they all vote. <laughs> and if you do a bit of dicking, we've done a number of shows about the South, the slavery, the South slavery. There's so much post-racial identity, which people don't even acknowledge. I mean, we're all in a weird mix. You're you're more explicit because you know your own history, mm -hmm. uh, but most of us have strange blood in us that we don't know about, that we're right. embarrassed about, that we refuse to recognize. Yeah, and a lot of people don't want to talk about it. I mean, that's that's a sort of big, it's a big bone to pick with people whose ancestors were slaveholders that those are the people who hold the information. There's a lot of documents, there's a lot of, a lot of history kind of hiding, and that the people with that information are afraid to reveal it for fear of being asked for reparations or for retaliation and all, you know, all of which might be reasonable fears. But I mean, I had this amazing moment, which is in the book. I did 23andMe and, um, and got a family tree finally from my father's side. And it talked about not only the enslaved people in my family, but the enslaver, the person who owned those slaves. And I was able to research him, get in touch with the living descendant who lives in Texas, a woman named Karen, 
and emailed her and we've become great friends and we email all the time and she's very helpful and has sent me tons of information and genealogy records and it's it's incredible and i wish everyone would do that that's part of what needs to happen to get through things it certainly is well to help get through things i think everyone needs to read nabil's new book my life in the sunshine searching for my father and discovering my family he has a very broad enlightened way of a, a, a sunny way, I think, of, of redefining family. It's a wonderful book, a wonderful story. Nabil, congratulations. Thank you so much. On the book. I hope it's, as you say, I hope it's just side A of a multi, a multi-album series uh, or multi-record uh, album. Uh, what else have you been reading recently? I'm sure you've been busy with this book. Any other books that you particularly would encourage people to read in addition to your new book, My Life in the Sunshine? Yeah, I, mean, I really love Little Devil in America, Hanif uh, Abdul-Rakib, which came out last year, I think. But as you say, I've been busy and a bit behind, but he just writes about music in such a beautiful, eloquent way. To me, it's not a music book, but there's so much music in it. That's kind of, I'm not comparing my book to his, but I feel like that about my book as well. It's not a music book, but it's full of music, but he does so in a way that just makes me so happy and jealous. Um, and there's another book that I discovered recently that I think people probably won't know about. It's called Oreo, and it's by a woman named Fran Ross. And I think it originally came out in sort of a small press in the 70s. Mm. And it was repressed a few years ago. And it's just this great story about this girl, maybe young teenage girl who goes to New York in search of her father. I identified a ton with the book. She's biracial, she's looking for her father, but it's fiction. And she goes through this kind of, this really crazy few days in New York in the 70s. It's really like this magical kind of exciting fantasy book. By the way, Nabil, I forgot to mention that you apparently, at least according to your Wikipedia page, <laughs> you're ranked number seven in the list of the 100 most influential people <laughs> in Brooklyn. That You're going to put that on your grave? Uh, I mean, I hope to get to number one by the time we get there, by the end of side two. 